So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had probably one of the weirdest conversations I've ever had in my 15 years of being married to my wife. Uh, we had a conversation about the Byzantine Empire. Now, I'll tell you how it came up in just a second, but if you don't know what the Byzantine Empire is, it was the eastern half of the Roman Empire. It survived past the death of the western part, uh, lasted until about the 1400s when it was taken over by the Ottomans. And the Ottomans lasted until just a little over 100 years ago. Uh, and so there's kind of a flow there. But the reason it came up was not because we had watched a show or read a book or because we were trying to teach our children. The word Byzantine came up on our word of the day calendar. And my wife looked at me and she asked me, in what world and in what place is somebody casually dropping the word Byzantine? And I had to think about that and I thought, well, you know what? I'll take a little poll this morning. In the last 24 hours, how many of you have dropped the word Byzantine into a conversation? All right, I'll give you the last month. Last year? No hands up. Now, maybe the reason for that is not because we've forgotten all about it from history class, but because it ended 600 years ago. Now, this morning, we're going to look at seven parables, and they all have the same theme. They're all about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, and while the Babylonian, the Aztec, and the Egyptian, and the Assyrian, and the Roman, and the British, and the Ottoman empires have all come to an end, the kingdom of Jesus Christ remains. This morning, we come to our third section in Matthew that we're going to go through this year. And we've been focusing on what it means to follow Jesus. And we've said, you know what? If we're going to follow Jesus, he has to be our primary relationship. Meaning, we have to give attention like we would give attention to a spouse or a child. But even more so, it's supposed to be our primary relationship. But we also saw, for example, that if we're going to follow Jesus and do what he wants us to do, that from time to time, he's going to call us to work in difficult soil. And that we are going to have to put some hard uh, sweat and tears into following Jesus him but in the second half of chapter 13 here we're going to see a little bit uh, see uh, things a little bit differently jesus is not stopping his teaching about following him but he's really more can beginning to focus on encouraging those who follow him and so what we could call this section of matthew is encouragement or reasons to keep following jesus reasons to keep following jesus and number one the first thing we see in these parables is that we follow jesus because his kingdom always grows his kingdom always grows now the first parable here is about a man who goes out and plants a field of wheat apparently he's not liked uh, liked very much and so an enemy comes and and plants weeds within the 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 wheat and when the, the when the the plant just begins to come up they notice the weeds. Now, I want you to think about that. These are people who've probably spent a good amount of time clearing rocks and turning over soil and, and maybe trying to put some nutrition in the soil and taking the time to plant. And knowing they didn't put weeds there, realize it's sabotage. Somebody has come in and planted weeds. Now, if you know in the parable... The servants will ask the question, should we just try and pull the weeds up? 
And the master says, no, we're going to have to let them grow together unless we lose some of the wheat. And he says, and eventually what we'll do is when, the, when we gather the harvest, we're going to throw the weeds in the fire. The next parable in verse 31, he, Jesus describes the small seed re, uh, growing into a tree. Now, the idea here is not that it's the smallest seed in the world. The idea is it's the smallest common seed that was planted in that area. And it was a very small seed, and some of those trees in that area could get six to seven feet high. That's a big mustard tree. And so the idea here is that you start with something small, and then it continues to grow. It grows bigger and bigger. And then in verse 33, he uses a parable of leaven. Now what happens when you add leaven to flour, to flour and water? It grows. The leaven permeates, and it goes through the flour, and it begins to cause it to grow and grow. And so we see three illustrations here of things that grow. Now, the clearest idea here is that Jesus is talking about the church or, or Christianity. It's going to grow and grow and grow, and, and this is obvious to us, right? We have 2,000 years of history of seeing this. We have 2,000 years of watching the gospel go places where it never was and have impacts on large cultures. If you ever if I, uh, go and, and look up the country of Suriname. And we, we know about times when, when, when churches were started and they were maybe five or six people and, and then eventually grew to two or three or four or 500 people. I know of a church in the Middle East that did that in the United Arab Emirates. Started out with 50 people and today is nearly 2,000 strong of multitudes of nationalities. So we have that history. But you have to remind yourself that the disciples did not. And you got to think about times in Acts where there was Peter in prison or Paul in prison. And you have to think, they asked the question, is this actually going to work? Now, some of us struggle with the same thing, don't we? And we begin to wonder, what good is having God in my life if this kind of stuff keeps happening? And what we would call that is being little kingdom-minded. Our thoughts, our ideas, the way we look at the world is limited to just our family and friends and our careers and maybe some of our stuff and our physical health. And we look at all that stuff and we, we use it to kind of gauge as a sign for, for whether or not God is helping us. But God said that he's going to grow his kingdom and he's not going to grow your kingdom. And, and it should permeate the way we look at our life. For example, sometimes it's obvious what we're supposed to do. Let's say at Christmas time you get a $5,000 bonus from your from your workplace, you, you, unexpected money. Maybe you could think, you know what? I should help the horns in Kenya. When they shared last week, they had a number of ministries that were still looking for donors. Now, sometimes it's not so easy. Sometimes we have to deal with perhaps the loss of a job. We have to deal with a broken relationship. Perhaps even someone has died. And we have to say, you know what? I don't know what's going on here, but I do know that God wants me to respond this way. I have to be able to look at those difficult moments and say, you know what? Nothing changes. But maybe let me put it this way. 
You go to the book of Revelation. And we find out at the end of days, there will be no more tears, and all the tears will be dried, and there will be an outbreak of worship. And the idea is, is that means that God is going to take our deepest and hardest pain, and he's going to show us how he used it for the growth of his kingdom. And we're going to see, and we're going to say it was worth it. And, and, and praise to God that this, this was used by him. And so we remind ourselves, you know what? Jesus' kingdom is always going to grow. No political party, no social movement, no wicked ruler is going to be able to stop that. It is not fragile like our little kingdoms. His kingdom will grow past us. It will be beyond us. Whether we die this year or next year, whether we minister to large groups or small groups, his kingdom will continue to grow and grow and grow. Our struggle is that we're sometimes guilty of picking putting all of our effort into our kingdom to grow our little kingdom instead of chasing after his kingdom following jesus and seeing his kingdom grow but the encouragement we have here is this that jesus's kingdom will always grow number two this morning the second reason we follow Jesus or keep following Jesus would be this. Follow Jesus because his kingdom will judge all others. His kingdom will judge all others. Now here in verse 34 to 43, we get a bit of a narrative. We're told that Jesus tells us again that he is, he is speaking in parables because the people do not believe. In fact, he quotes from Psalm 78. And if you turned in your Bible, and we're not going to do that, but if you turned in your Bible, Psalm 78... You would read a history of Israel, all the way from their exodus to King David. And what you would notice is that about every three or four lines, the author is going to say, and they provoked God's wrath, or they made God angry. And so the idea here is Jesus is quoting something to let the disciples know that these things that he's telling them are going to result in judgment, meaning there are going to be those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be judged. It brings us back to the parable of the man who planted the field and the, and the enemy that came and planted the weeds. And he says, you know what? Let me explain this to you. The field is all the people of the world and the grain or the wheat represents the people of God, those who were saved. And those people were planted in the world by Jesus. And he says the weeds, they symbolize the children of the wicked one. And they're placed there by the enemy. And the harvest is the end of the days. And, and the angels are going to come and pull the weeds up. And they're going to throw them in the pyre. And they will gather all of the Christians. And they will gather all of the wicked. And there will be nowhere to hide. Every practitioner of sin will be judged and cast into the eternal fire. And they will not repent. Have you ever wondered what that phrase means, weeping and gnashing of teeth? I don't want you to think of the idea of people being sad. I want you to think of a toddler throwing a fit. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the idea not that they're repentant now that they're in the fire. It is they are still shaking their fist in defiance of God. But I want you to note verse 43. He says, the righteous who are also gathered are going to shine forth like the sun. Now, this is an interesting picture because later in 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible is going to expand on this. 
The idea is that every child of God is going to shine just like uh, a, a part of the universe. We know, for example, because of telescopes, that some stars shine differently than others. Maybe if you've ever looked at a nebula or maybe a, a galaxy and you see those various types of stars and you might be in awe. Have you ever been to the, plan, uh, the planetarium at the Creation Museum in Kentucky? That is an, an amazing experience seeing outer space that way. But the idea is the righteous will be gathered. And if you were to look upon them, it would be glorious, like looking upon the universe. But Jesus is saying, you know what? Within all of this, throughout all of church history, there are going to be weeds. There are going to be some who are going to come in and they're going to disrupt the local church. Some who are going to come in and call themselves Christians, but be wolves in sheep's clothing. Some will rise into prominence in the church and in prominence in the world, and they might name the name of Jesus and eventually will be revealed as blasphemers and thieves and dividers and adulterers. The enemy's always going to make sure there are weeds. And we will always wonder if the weeds are going to overtake the garden. But the answer is no. It will not only grow, but all of those things, all of those kingdoms will come under the judgment of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus speaks words of judgment, sometimes we get uncomfortable. We sometimes wonder, how can we get around this? We don't want Jesus to come across as, as too mean. But I want you to think of this moment as, as a case before the Supreme Court. The idea in our country, of course, is that when a, the Supreme Court does a ruling, that they're all, the ultimate point of justice. All right, we, we, we don't look at them as being mean. We look at them as, as trying to, to, to give out justice. And their justice is imperfect, but we know that Jesus' justice will be perfect. Now, the way, main way the Bible applies the idea here of judgment is the idea of politics and division. If you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, we learn about a church divided. We learn about a church where there was one group that was trying to rally around one teacher and another group trying to rally around another teacher, and they were divided. This camp and that camp, this is a local church. Now, later in the Bible, we're told because of that war and that division in the church, God stopped listening and answering their prayers. In James, we find that in chapter 2, we find this church wanted to rally around the influential. They wanted to, to be the church that was liked by everybody. And we're told in James, as a result, the poor were neglected and the gospel was distorted. And so the idea here is this. If you want a church where God doesn't hear the prayers of the people of that church, then feel free to stir up division. You can create your own little kingdom within the church, but understand that kingdom will be judged. You can go ahead and try to, to build a church about, around being popular and, and build the church around being well-liked, but understand the poor are going to be neglected, the gospel is going to be distorted, and there will be a day of judgment. The idea of political application... In every way, we have to make sure we show our fidelity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
all too often. And it's not just right now in America. It's not just in this place as we're thinking about it. But all too often in church history, we have found that the faith was hijacked by political leaders and movements. And on the other side of that coin, we're told that we must resist any government that would hold a gun to our head and try to get us to deny our Lord. And the reason we do not do these things is because we know that judgment is coming. And then number three, we follow Jesus because his kingdom is our gain. His kingdom is our gain. So the text ends with four more parables here. One about a man who finds a treasure. Another about a man that finds a rare pearl. And another man who who is a group of fishermen that bring in a great great catch. And then lastly, we get a picture of a rich man showing off his stuff. I want you to see the big picture. Now, this isn't just exclusively exclusively an end-of-times thing. Jesus is describing salvation terms. So let me say it this way. Anywhere the gospel is preached and anywhere people are being saved... And anywhere and any time people are being saved, the kingdom of heaven is there. Now, we know it's not going to be seen in its purest form. As great as this church might be, it's not going to be seen in its purest form until Jesus comes and judges the world. But understand, the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be here. And first of all, the first parable, we have a man who finds a treasure hidden in the field. So the idea is he finds the kingdom of heaven. Someone preaches the gospel to him. And so what does he do? He sells all that he has to purchase the field and possess the treasure. And so the idea, of course, is that, the, 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 that knowing Christ and being a part of the kingdom is so precious that it's worth the loss of everything. It is, it is more makes up than the loss of everything. It is of greater value than anything else that you possess. And then we have a second parable with a man who travels looking for pearls. He's described here as uh, the idea probably here is, is a teacher or a scholar looking for wisdom. I mean, here's the gospel, and he immediately recognizes that this is something that is far more valuable than his pearls. The second man does the same thing. He sells all that he has. He realizes it's superior than all the other wisdom he's ever collected in his lifetime. Third parable is a little different. We get a explanation the fishermen go out to fish they bring in this great catch it's a life-changing catch they're going to make a ton of money uh and, and so they go through the fish they toss the ones out that they can't sell and the idea again jesus reminds us this is like the end of the age when the angels gather up those who are wicked and throw them into the eternal fire now here though the weeping and gnashing of teeth is them crying out because they don't think it's been fair why is god rewarding these people and then lastly Lastly, clearly, verse 52 is a challenge. That those who know these things, they know how valuable the kingdom is, are to be a man who shows off his greatest treasures. How many of you remember the old show, The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Remember Robin Leach? I think it came on Saturday after cartoons, so sometimes I would accidentally watch it. And it was just a whole show of nothing more than going to celebrities' houses or rich people's houses and them showing off all their stuff and how they had bowling alleys in their, in their basement. And on their fourth floor was an entire movies theater and, and how they perhaps had the, uh, 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 the first issue of Superman. Or may, I remember one guy had uh, rare dinosaur bones. They were rich beyond measure. 
And here they are guiding us through their home, showing these things off. Now, why do we act like the idea that we follow Jesus or worship Jesus or know Jesus is potentially embarrassing? We're supposed to show off what we've gained to everyone. Unfortunately, I've heard stories from my pastor's friends this last year. How they found out that people they thought treasured Jesus really did not. They've shared stories, we've shared stories with each other about times where they were told by a family in their church that they were not comfortable coming back during COVID and then, and then seen eating lunch indoors at a local restaurant after the service. My friends who had families in the church who were steady churchgoers, they were involved in the church, they were leaders in the church, and after they had to shut down because of COVID, simply did not come back. And while there might be exceptions or two, what we see is that there are Christians in America who have realized they think they have a better treasure somewhere else. The better treasure of sleeping in, the, the better pleasure of discretionary money. Perhaps it's the, <coughs> the special treasure of being able to see the beginning of a ball game or, or make it to the store for the final day of the sale. Or the treasure of maybe getting a few extra hours of work in so you can go on vacation sooner. But something has clearly become the greater treasure. Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be proud because we're here this morning. It's a warning. The reality is at any given time, some other treasure could catch our eye. But we need to hold firmly that there is no greater treasure. But that brings us to the question, how are we supposed to show it off? How much effort or labor are you and I putting in now, you can play one of two roles in this. The first, you can be the person who brings the stuff out and shows it off. All right? You can go and work at Awana, and you can go to BBS or teach a Sunday school class, or go to the ladies' Bible study, or start a ladies' Bible study, or whatever. And you can use that time to show off the treasures of God. Or, you can be the kind of person who supports those who are showing off the treasures. It's as simple as maybe donating to the Iwana Camp Fund, even if it's just 50 bucks. Maybe it's sending out a thank you card or remembering a birthday or thank heaven somebody last month made me fudge. You should honor those God is using to show off his treasures. You're supposed to. Now, maybe you're not gifted in a way that it's supposed to be seen in a large scale in your local church, but guess what? God expects you to show it off to those within your realm. To give to the poor. Maybe it's what you send your grandkids. Maybe it's FaceTiming with a friend or a relative and telling them what God has done. You are richer than you know. And you will not know until you see him face to face. But what glimpse you do have of the treasure of the kingdom, you are supposed to show it off. So why do we follow Jesus? Because it's not a matter of our personal experience. It's a matter of the kingdom of heaven is always going to grow. Christianity does not go backwards. It's never a lost cause. It's always worth the effort. 
We follow because Jesus is Lord of the kingdom of heaven, will judge other kingdoms. And we are warned that there is no neutral ground. Only one kingdom is eternal. We are to keep our religion pure by not letting it hijacked by the earthly kingdoms. Lastly, we follow Jesus because the kingdom of heaven is a great treasure. His kingdom is our gain. And nothing we possess on earth is of equal value. So let's dig up those treasures. And let's show them off to the Iwana kids and to our neighbors. And especially to the lost. Because we have more than we could ever know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement of these words. I pray and thank you for the reminders of the truth about your kingdom, how it will always grow, that it will always stand in judgment over other kingdoms. And Father, that by your kingdom we are made prosper, uh, prosperous. And Father, we thank you for the riches we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for the ways you take care of us and have blessed us. Let us show it in return in Jesus' name. Amen.